0: All right, well, good evening and welcome back to our evening study in our series through the doctrines of grace. We're pretty much going to just jump straight in, a lot to cover, and we'll just keep going until we pretty much run out of time. Last week, we did lesson four on total depravity and ran out of time, so I'm going to start with a brief recap just to get you back up to speed. In, In general, we're starting this whole study on the doctrines of grace, asking first, how has sin affected the human condition? So we studied the fall. We studied original sin. We found that from the fall and, and thereby original sin, we have inherited both a sin nature and guilt or condemnation. We, we get both at birth. That's all humanity is, is in a state of, of sin and, and guilt. And that's, that's why we can describe, after all that study, the condition of man after the fall under this term, total depravity. And that's what we started learning last week. What does that mean? Again, just by review, it doesn't mean that all people are as bad as they possibly could be. It doesn't mean people are incapable of virtue. People can still do good things on a human level, it's just not in the sight of God. Total depravity means people cannot do good in, in any way that pleases God or earns merit or favor before God. They are depraved, they're defiled, so anything that comes from them is likewise defiled. Their natures are corrupt and incapable of any spiritual good. All are spiritually dead in sin and under the curse of sin, their lives are governed by evil principles and they're unable to therefore truly know or love God. That explains why we use the word depraved. Depraved means morally wicked or corrupt. And again, we're born in such a state. Man's nature at birth, his his will is fixed against God. He's like pointed in the wrong direction just from the get-go. He starts the race going in the wrong direction. So it doesn't matter how hard he strives, he's always going to be striving away from God, not toward God. And we also use the word total, total depravity, not to suggest that, again, people are as bad as they could be. That when we use the word total, we mean that this depravity has affected and infected every part of our being. Every aspect of our humanity has been touched and defiled by this depravity, the inherited guilt, and sin nature from from Adam. Our intellect, our emotion, our will, every part of our personhood is now depraved, hence total depravity. Last week, we just ran through a ton of verses that depict man's current state. After the fall, before salvation, what is the status or the state of mankind? And we just went verse after verse, Old Testament, New Testament, and it's it's pretty clear and, and pretty clearly bad. Uh, man is, is lost in sin. And just, again, by way of review, getting us back up to speed, I'll, I'll read a, just three verses that we didn't have time to read from last week that talk about total depravity and express man's sin condition right now, an unsaved man's sin condition. Here's Ephesians 2, 1-3, through 3, which says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Describes us before salvation, believers, before salvation, like the rest of the world, we were what? Dead, spiritually dead, and trespasses and sins enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, living in the lust of the flesh. Why? Because it was our nature. We were by nature children of wrath. Later in Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 19, Paul says there that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, with greediness. It's such a bleak picture of of the unbeliever, which we we used to be like that. He says, no longer walk that way. That used to be us. We used to be in futility of mind, darkened in understanding, excluded from the life of God because of our ignorance and hardened hearts. That was once us. That is still the state of a fallen man. And then one more verse real quick. Titus 1, 15 through 16. He says to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Those who are Not truly saved, the defiled, the unbelieving. Nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. No good work that comes from them is pure in God's eyes. Everything they touch is defiled because they are defiled. The example of a poisoned well. You can just draw all the water you want from it, but it's all going to be poisoned water. And so he says they're worthless for any good deed. And this is total depravity. And that just adds to just the the dozens of verses we looked at last week. The biblical testimony on humanity's total depravity, it's clear, it's consistent, it's overwhelming. Pretty much everywhere, scripture paints a bleak picture of mankind being dominated by sin. Before redemption, after the fall, we are totally depraved. Our entire being is infected by sin. It's it's a heart problem, as we learn. It's a condition of the heart, a fallen heart, a sin nature. And so everything that comes out out of the heart, which is all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds. Isn't that what Christ taught? Everything you say and do comes from the heart. The heart is spoiled and depraved. Therefore, everything we do is is unrighteous, is worthless before God as a good deed. Just to uh, wrap up that discussion on total depravity, I want to read this illustration. It was in your handout. So if you have your handout from last week, the lesson four, you have it there. I gave you that page, and if you don't, it's fine, just listen along. But it's such a perfect illustration of total depravity comes from the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Botner, and it's probably the best illustration of total depravity I've heard, so I just want to read it and just uh, use it to help illustrate and explain everything we studied last time before we move on today. So follow along if you have it, or even if you don't, just try and pay attention. He starts and says, quote, in using the illustration of pirates, which is a great way to do it. He says, in a gang of pirates, we may find things that are good in themselves. Though they are in wicked rebellion against the laws of government, they have their own laws and regulations, which they obey strictly. We find among them courage and fidelity with many other things that will recommend them as pirates. And so as with told depravity, we're not saying people can't do good by the world's standards, these pirates in their, in their circle, they can do good among themselves, just not by a greater standard. He says after that, they may do many things, too, which the laws of government require, but they're not done because the government has so required, but in obedience to their own regulations. For instance, the government requires honesty, and they may be strictly honest, one with another, in their transactions and the division of all their spoil. Yet, as respects the government and the general principle, their whole life is one of most wicked dishonesty. And that's another great illustration. They can do good. They can abide by certain virtues like honesty. But for one, it's never motivated for the right reasons. Like man is not honest for God's honor, but for some own, some of his own selfish purposes or desires. And even at that, it, it's not done in, in the right way. In God's eyes, it's It's not honesty. They're in a state of rebellion, so everything they do is is unrighteous before God. He says, Now it is plain that while they continue in their rebellion, they can do nothing to recommend them to the government as citizens. The first step must be to give up their rebellion, acknowledge their allegiance to the government, and sue for mercy. So all men in their natural state are rebels against God, and though they may do many things which the law of God requires— and which will recommend them as men, yet nothing is done with reference to God and his law. Instead, the regulations of society, respect for public opinion, selfish interest, their own character in the set of the world, or some other worldly or wicked motive reigns supremely. And God, to whom they owe their heart and lives, is forgotten. Or, if thought of at all, his claims are wickedly rejected, his counsel spurned, and the heart, in obstinate rebellion, refuses obedience. Now it is plain that while the heart continues in this state, the man is a rebel against God and can do nothing to recommend him to his favor. The first step is to give up his rebellion, repent of his sins, turn to God, and sue for pardon and reconciliation through the Savior. This he is unwilling to do until he is made willing. He loves his sins and will continue to love them until the heart is changed. So the illustration of a pirate Think back in the 1700s, 1800s, in in the Caribbean, of course. They're living in a state of rebellion. Their their whole existence is one of rebellion against the the British crown, for example, or or the French royalty or the monarchy, depending on where they come from. But they live as total rebels to the state. Everything they do is in a state of rebellion. They can do good things. They can even show charity, but their their whole existence is one of rebellion, so it, it spoils everything they do. By definition, they're traitors, they're rebels to the government. So if they're caught, it doesn't matter if if they think they're nice pirates. The penalty is still death that they're enemies of the state. And they can do no good to to get back in. They've already done their their crimes and deeds, so they're, they're just awaiting death. Their only hope is simply to abandon their rebellion, turn and just beg for mercy from the state, from the crown, and give up the rebellion. The kicker is that they don't, they don't want to do that, though. They, they don't have that desire. It's not that they, they love their pirating career. They love what they do. They have no desire to give up this rebellion. And they, they never will. They must be made willing. They must be changed to see the folly of their ways that they would repent and seek favor. And so that's exactly how it is with fallen man. He's in a state of rebellion against God. Doesn't even know better. He he loves that state, and he will never do otherwise because he doesn't want to. Just to finish, the final quote here. He says, The good actions of unregenerate men are not positively sinful in themselves, but sinful from defect. They lack the principle which alone can make them righteous in the sight of God. In the case of the pirates, it's easy to see that all their actions are sin against the government. While they continue as pirates, they're sailing, mending, or rigging the vessel, even their eating and drinking are all sins in the eyes of the government, as there are only so many expedients to enable them to continue their piratical career and are parts of their life of rebellion. So with sinners, while the heart is wrong, it it vitiates, that means spoils, everything in the sight of God, even their most ordinary occupations. For the plain unequivocal, unequivocal language of God is, even the lamp of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 24, end quote. And that's a great illustration as well where, look, the pirate, he, his whole existence is one of rebellion. So even as he's doing normal things or good things like eating and drinking or, or going to bed at night, even those neutral things in the eyes of the government are sin. Because everything he does is merely furthering his career of rebellion. When he repairs his boat, It's a neutral thing. It's not morally good or evil, but it's only furthering his career of rebellions in the eyes of the government. Even that is wicked. And so it is with fallen man who lives in rebellion against God. Everything he does is merely furthering his rebellion. Nothing that comes from him is good that can commend him before God. He has to first see his rebellion, give it up, repent, and plead for mercy. And one of the points this book makes, is he must be made willing to do so first. The first, if you understand all this, you can see how this this kills salvation by good works. Even if that were possible, our hands are defiled, our hearts are defiled, you can't produce any. So even if it were theoretically possible, you can't even produce one good work in the sight of God because of this total depravity. Salvation has to be all by grace. Also, this total depravity necessitates... God's initiative in salvation. Because what did we learn? We're lost, blind, enslaved, depraved. And it already should be clear we'll never choose God, pardon me, we'll never choose God on our own. Told depravity affects the freedom of the will, the will's ability to choose God. And that brings us to our lesson tonight. So that was all, just recap from last week. Now we come to our lesson for tonight, which is lesson five. You have your handout from last week. It's on total inability. And it's really just the corollary to total depravity. They go together, two sides of the same coin. Talking about the will. God made humans to be persons. One way to define personhood is possessing intellect, emotion, and will. And that And The last one, the will. That's been the subject of much... Philosophical debate throughout the ages. Human will may be defined as the ability to choose, think, or act voluntarily. But the age-old question is, is our will free? Do we have free will, meaning the freedom to make choices apart from any external factors or influences or conditions? Most people would answer yes, especially Americans. As Americans, we champion freedom and liberty, and it's all the more so. Today, our culture is all about personal freedom. You should be free to do whatever you want to do, and and it's just assumed. Of course, you're free. People like the government try and keep you back, but you should be free to do what you want to do, and in your heart, you certainly are free. Granted, there might be external circumstances trying to constrain your will, like you're not can't rob a bank because the police will, will catch you, but your heart is free. You, should, you have this freedom of the will. You technically can do anything you want. And people just default to a sense of even libertarian free will. You can do anything you want without any external influence whatsoever. Theologically, many believe our will is similarly free and free to choose God, which seems natural and obvious, they would say. Faith is an option. That's obvious. Everyone believes that. And we know not everyone believes in God. And so the question is, why not? Well, we also know the answer has something to do with sin, which we established weeks ago is a universal problem. We stand before God guilty and condemned, the just penalty of hell hanging over our heads. But God, in his mercy and love, he sent sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins that we'd be fully forgiven and even granted eternal life. And now by believing in Jesus, submitting your life to him in faith, you can be born again, granted entrance in God's kingdom. Sounds like a good deal. Knowing what we know, right? Sounds like a pretty good deal. You you deserve nothing but hell. And here's instead, by grace, just free eternal life. Sounds good. As we know, though, all too many reject that free gift. They, they They don't want it. They don't want any part of it. They don't buy it. They don't believe it. They reject God and they reject Christ. And so it makes us wonder, it's such, a, such a, an amazing free gift. Why would you not want that? Why would, why would someone reject that? Why would someone turn that down? And basically, why don't people believe? And two, ba- two basic answers. Either non-Christians don't believe because they don't want to believe, or... Non-Christians don't believe because they can't believe, either they, they don't want to believe, or they can't believe. They either have a problem in their will, they just don't want to do it, or they have a, a deeper problem in their ability. They can't do it. The Armenian would say the former, that the non-Christian doesn't believe because he doesn't want to believe. Their problem is merely in their will, and so they just have to be convinced. You just have to convince them to believe. Armenians view human will as still free in the sense of being able to choose to believe apart from external factors after what they would call provenient grace. They believe in what would be called libertarian free will, which is like this thing of the most extreme free will you can. It's the power of contrary choice. You can literally you have the freedom to make any choice. Um, nothing binds your will. So the non-Christian, of course, has the ability to believe in God and be saved. He just has to make the free choice to do so, and that choice is entirely theirs. And it has to be theirs, they say. The Calvinists would represent the latter, namely that non-Christians, they don't believe because they can't believe. Or actually, more specifically, the Calvinists would say non-Christians, they don't want to believe because they can't believe. The non-Christian suffers from a deeper problem and that they don't even have the ability to believe, to willingly choose God. Their will has been crippled. And so, of course, they don't want to believe because their will is handicapped and they can't. Human free will was so diminished and damaged in the fall that humans have lost the ability to freely choose God and believe in him, resulting in salvation. Instead, their will may be better represented as bound, not free, but bound, bound to sin, bound to Satan. Therefore, for anyone to respond in saving faith, God must first do something to them to to free their will, to unbind their will, to change their heart. God has to basically set them free and draw them to himself, something he does through an act of special saving grace. So that, that's a very clear difference between the two. The, the differences are starting to become clearer between these two systems of thought. I and mean, that debate goes back a while. You know, we've, we've talked about Calvin and Arminius. Before them, there was Luther and Erasmus. And that's what they were going at, at each other over. This guy Erasmus wrote his treatise on the freedom of the will. And Luther responded with his, probably his greatest work, his, his greatest book, on uh, The Bondage of the Will. And well, that's the two sides, though. It's a, what has happened to the will after the fall? Is it free? Has it been freed by prevenient grace? Is it bound? Now, to a measure, this whole discussion can't be divorced from the concept of God's grace. We're saving that later, though. That will come in time, so we're just going to hold back on that now. It's important, but everything in its time, so we'll get there. For now, though, it's worthwhile to study how Scripture depicts non-Christians in the present, meaning, again, after the fall before salvation. In other words, if the Arminian view is correct, we would expect Scripture to describe unbelievers as once totally depraved, but consequently freed by God's grace. We would expect explicit statements describing the will as free. Yeah, humanity, you might have had some bad stuff after the fall, but God has given a, this prevenient grace to everybody. And so now you're, you're, you're freed up, your will is free, and you're able to choose. And we, we, would, we, sh- we would expect to see explicit statements to that effect. Fair? On the flip side, if the Calvinist view is correct, we would expect Scripture to describe unbelievers as still totally depraved and therefore unable to choose to believe God and be saved. We would expect the same standard of explicit statements describing the will, not as free, but as bound, as unable to know God or choose God because of this whole whole depravity problem that we've already covered. And so what we're going to do now for for the rest of our time is basically search the scriptures and see how they describe the state of the will or ability of the non-Christian. Now, we're going to start off with some verses that you had in your homework that Arminians used to, dis- to support the notion of a free or freed human will. And uh, I'll just read these to you. You don't have to turn. I'll, I'll make it relatively brief because they're redundant on purpose. Your, uh, your homework, in case you're wondering, the first blank says, free will is taught by And the first answer is commands to believe. Commands to believe. They say, and all these verses are basically examples of where God has commanded us to believe. And they say that implies that we're able to believe. Because how and why would God command us to do something we're not able to do? And so there's a million examples, and I just gave you a few, really, the Bible commands us all over to believe. We don't dispute that. And so they think that implicitly teaches, well, we must be free to do so. Because why would God command us to do something we're not free to do? And maybe that makes sense to you. Deuteronomy 30, 15 and 16. God said to the people, see, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity and that I command you today to love the Lord your God. And so forth to choose God. Pardon me. Like Joshua twenty four fifteen says, he said to the people, "Choose today whom you will serve." Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, "Come all who are weary; I'll give you rest." Luke thirteen twenty four. Christ told the, told them, "Strive to enter through the narrow door." John four fourteen. Jesus said, "Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst." John five, 20, uh, 5 twenty-four. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And we can go on. All the verses in Acts, those all our commands by the apostles to the crowd to repent and believe. Romans 3 and following are all commands to, to have faith. We're justified by faith. So confess the name of the Lord and be saved. And so forth. So first... Why do they believe in this notion of a free or freed will? How do they support it in scripture that the will is is freed up? First, it comes by all the commands to believe. And they simply reason, well, God wouldn't command us to do something that we're not able to do. So that's number one. The second blank, free will is taught by the fact that God judges for sin and unbelief. The fact that God judges for sin and unbelief. And the, the example is First Corinthians 3, Revelation 20, and there again, there's many more. Uh, those are examples of God's judgment for sin and unbelief. And here, of course, they reason. You now, how could God judge us for sin and unbelief if we're not able to do otherwise? If we're not free to not sin, then it, it's not fair, it's not just for God to judge us. For sin, if it's inevitable, if we have no choice in the matter, if we're really bound, it's not, it's not fair, it's not just for God to judge us. So, again, the mere fact that God will judge us for sin and for not believing implies we must have the freedom, the ability to believe and even not to sin. And lastly, the third reason free will is taught by the fact. That God desires all to be saved. The fact that God desires all to be saved. And here's some verses. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? First Timothy 2, 4. Speaks of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then 2 Peter 3:9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What they see here, they think they reason, God, He's all powerful, of course. And scripture says, I mean, there's three verses that say God desires, he wishes for all to be saved. But we know not everyone is saved. And so the question is, why not? What is preventing the salvation of all people? Is it God's will or man's will? And they see those verses and they say, well, see, God, God wills for all to be saved. So it must be man's will. Man's will must be holding back all people from being saved. And so they they just see free will, our ability to resist God's will, since we're free, is the reason not all are saved. So from the fact that we're commanded to believe, the fact that God judges for sin and unbelief, the fact that God desires all to repent and be saved, from this, they, they reason our will has to be free. Otherwise, none of this seems right or fair a lot of verses, we could add a bunch more. We don't doubt that. However, if you did the homework or just following along right now, you may have noticed there was not a single explicit mention of man's will actually being free or restored or unbound. In fact, there are zero mentions of this libertarian free will in Scripture, this power of contrary choice. Look, of course you're free to to do what you're able to do. Like, am I free to, to, you know, drop my Bible or not? Of course. No, No one doubts that. No one's doubting that notion of freedom. But this notion of libertarian free will, freedom of contrary choice, it's actually not a single verse in Scripture that teaches that or says that. What you'll notice is their entire case for this extreme free will, it's entirely implicit in Scripture. It's not explicit. There's no actual verse that says that. They just see verses and then they deduce, they reason from there that, well, this this must be the case. And I scoured tons of Armenian websites, key websites, key theologians. I even went and looked at the Jehovah's Witnesses because they're very hardcore. I guess they would say Armenians, but they're, they're the same thing. And this is all you get. All you get are these implicit verses saying, "Well, we must have free will because look at all these these verses that we're able that we're commanded to believe." So you'll notice their entire position on free will—it's built implicitly in Scripture, not explicitly. So there's no direct statement saying we have the freedom and ability to choose to believe in God. Rather, Arminius himself reasoned. Again, that God He would not command us to do uh, something that we're not able to do, and so He reasoned we must have the freedom and the ability to choose to believe or not. As you can see, this notion of free will then comes from human reasoning, not the explicit teaching of Scripture. Their entire case for free will is built on implicit human reasoning. Don, you want to jump in? <laughs> even others that aren't there where Jesus in Matthew says I desire I'm kind paraphrasing here but to take you all under my wings as ships but you weren't willing yeah. okay. the desire of God the desire of Jesus and the decree of God two completely different things so just because a passage talks about God's desire uh, that's certainly not a decree Uh, any more than in a different way for us. I could desire to do something, but I do not act on it and actually get it done. But I may desire to do it. Yeah, yeah. so Don is pointing out that there's a difference between God's desire and God's decree per se. And we'll say that in the future. A simple way of putting it is, what happens if you have multiple desires? What if you desire more than one thing? And they're competing which desire wins? like I desire to save for retirement because it's smart. I also desire to maybe buy a brand new car. but I'm not going to I'm going to deny that desire even though I want to buy a new car because it's wiser to save for retirement. And so one desire I might desire both one trumps the other. and so we'll talk about in the future God's genuine desires, his competing desires, his two wills, revealed will and, and hidden will, will of desire, will of decree. But that's absolutely right. And that that is how we understand those verses. We'll we'll get there. But yeah, it's valid to point out. Now, all this reasoning, you might say, okay, yeah, it's it's based, granted, there's no explicit verse, but it sure sounds reasonable, right? That's all all there are, many teaching on free will, like that. It it does sound reasonable. But the problem is, it, it does not accord with what Scripture explicitly teaches. And we always go with the explicit over the implicit. You know, what about commands like Matthew 5:48, where Jesus told them, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Where all the commands in the Old Testament for them to keep all the law. Those are impossible commands. We do not have the ability to keep those commands. In fact, Paul in particular teaches that's the whole point of such commands. God has shut up all under sin so that all are without excuse. We've already established all people are sinners, and and sinners even from birth. But God in his wisdom, he gave us an impossible standard that we can't keep. Why? To show us that we have no hope of attaining perfect righteousness by works or by our own effort. Instead, the impossible standard of the law was meant to show mankind his need for God's grace. Apart from grace, there can be no salvation. If man could perfectly keep God's law, then Christ died needlessly. He didn't need to come. The law was sufficient. But to the contrary, Jesus came and died precisely because we were not able to keep those commands. We didn't have the ability to. And so he had to come. And this is why we say salvation is entirely by grace. It's not earned or deserved. We're not able. It has to be by grace. All this goes to say, the mere presence of commands to believe in God and Scripture does not actually necessitate that we have the ability or freedom to do so. Now in a later study, we will address the many commands to believe in God, and we'll also talk about God's desire for all to be saved. Calvinism, in fact, fully accounts for these commands and entirely accepts man's responsibility and accountability to believe. Man is responsible to believe in the gospel, and he will be held accountable for his belief or lack thereof. However, man's responsibility does not come at the expense of God's sovereignty. And also man's will never thwarts God's will. God's will is always supreme. And when the two run up against each other, God's will is the unmoved cause there. It's never moved. God's will is ultimate. God is still sovereign in salvation. The whole point that we've learned so far with total depravity is if God weren't, none would be saved. None could be saved because of this problem of total depravity. In fact, far from Scripture describing our fallen state as free, Scripture instead describes our fallen state as bound, lost, blind, deaf, hopeless, and dead. And that is the explicit teaching of Scripture about our condition right now, after the fall, before salvation. That's the explicit teaching that right now, that's us. We weren't once that way, now we're, we're freed up. We are right now lost. Bound, enslaved to sin, unable to choose God. So here's what we're gonna do now. Last week in total depravity went through tons of verses talking about our state of sin and our fallenness and our condemnation. Covered all that. The corollary is to total depravity is total inability, that we're unable to do anything. Because of total depravity, we're totally unable. To do anything good. To choose God. To know God. Total depravity has crippled our wills. It has bound our wills. Sin and Satan has bound our will. We would say you're free to do whatever you're able to do. Yeah, we believe that. You're free to do whatever you're able to do. But the kicker is your will is no longer able to choose God. Because it is bound to sin and Satan. A simple example I use all the time is jumping to the moon. You're free to do whatever you're able to do, but you're not free to jump to the moon because you don't have the ability to jump to the moon. You can say you want to do it as much as you want, but you're, you're not free to do it. You have no freedom to do that because you're not able to do that. Your ability has limited your freedom. And that's what we're saying. And we'll see scripture teach about what's happened after the fall. Depravity has limited our ability. And so that's why our will is no longer free, like Adam's was. After the fall, our wills are bound. It's not an issue of your will's freedom, but your ability. And this is why this lesson is so important. Total inability. In fact, we'll probably spend uh, two nights on it, this week and next week, because we're obviously not going to finish at this point already. But let's just jump in. Let's jump into some verses. Let's see if we can get through everything here in the Gospel of John. So turn to John 3. This now accords with your homework. We're going to go through these verses, and we're going to study several explicit, not merely implicit, but explicit, clear teachings of Scripture which depict the unbeliever as not presently free, but presently bound in his will, and thereby unable to choose God. If you're presently bound and enslaved in your will, you're not able to to come to God, unless God does something first, and that's what this whole study is about. So John chapter 3, turn there. Now these first two, really just bonuses I put in here, we're, we're going to spend most of our time in John 6 in a second. But John 3, verse nineteen twenty. right after he says, you know, for God so loved the world, verse 16, he says, verse 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed is just a bonus verse mentioning how fallen man he, he doesn't come to the light Jesus came the light of the world who, who, would, who would turn him down who would not be attracted to, to Christ if, if you saw him, if you were there and during his ministry? Who would not believe? Who would not go to him? Well, a lot of people, and why not? They were in the darkness. They refused to come to the light for fear that their evil deeds were exposed. And, and the, the, the thing to note here in verse 19, they, they loved the darkness. That speaks of their heart's disposition, that their will didn't want to come to the light because that they loved right where they were. In fact, the light convicted them, and so they hated the light and wanted to put it out because they loved the darkness. So that's actually just a small verse. John 5, another small verse before we get to uh, the big chapter, chapter 6. John 5, 39 through 42. He's saying to the Jews... You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Where, where's the mention here of, of, of God's pervenient grace? They, they don't have the love of God in themselves. They haven't been touched by grace. And that's why they're unwilling to come to Jesus. He's offering life. Who would, who would willingly turn that down? None. But they are unwilling to turn to him because they haven't received the love of God. They, they do not have the love of God in their lives. Contrary to the Armenian claim that God's love has blanketed everyone with his prevenient grace that counteracts the fall, these, these people are unwilling because... They don't have, they have not received God's love. All right, that's just a couple of verses to get you started. Now let's turn to John 6. We'll spend some time here. John 6, big chapter, long chapter. Jesus starts by feeding the 5,000. You remember that, of course. Then he walks on water with his disciples, links back up with the crowd afterward that he fed the loaves of bread to. And as they circle back around, what do they want? They want more bread. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They They followed him to the other side of the lake because they, they want more of that free bread and, and free meal, and they're, they're excited about it. They want to see more signs. Jesus goes on to teach. Like You guys don't get it. It's not about the bread. It's about me. I'm I'm the bread of life. I'm what you're looking for. You partake of me, you'll never hunger again. You guys know the gist of it. He, he points to himself. He's what they need, but they're they're totally clueless. They're not getting it. So Jesus still he testifies. Let's jump down to verse thirty-five. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger." And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus mentions all who come to Jesus and believe, they will be saved. And that's true. All who do that, they will be saved. But these people, they, they, don't, they haven't come. They, they do not come. They don't believe, verse 36. Why not? And he explains in verse 37 that they weren't given by the Father. All who are given to the Son by the Father, they're going to come. They're going to believe. See, the fact is they're unable to come. They're unable to respond unless God acts. You notice here Jesus, he doesn't make the issue. They're free wills. It's about God's free will. God's will is at stake. Has God willed them to the Son or not? It has nothing to do with their will. They haven't come because of God's will. God has to give them to the Son. And God only acts on a limited number. Verse 38, he says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, But to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. First, you notice the issue here. This whole context is not about their will. It's all about God's will. This is the will of him who sent me. This is God's will. God has to will to give them to the son. This is all about God's free will. And Jesus came to do God's will. What is God's will? Verse 40 is true. Verse 40. This is the will of my father. Everyone who beholds the son and believes will have eternal life. That's totally true. Everybody who does that will have eternal life. Everybody who believes will have eternal life. But who's going to do that? Who's going to actually be in that group? Verse 39. You notice how parallel these statements are. He says, first, this is the will of him who sent me. This is God's will. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Which is, of course, parallel to believing and, and being saved. And, and God has not given all to the son. That, that fact is clear. Not all are saved. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. On the last day, there's that phrase again, I will raise him up on the last day. Third time, another parallel statement. Notice this, you know, verse 37 plus verse 44 put together, he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. This drawing, we'll talk about when we study God's grace. That's God's effectual grace. We'll get there later. But really the issue we're pointing out, look at the beginning of verse 44. For now we're just studying ability. And here is an explicit statement on man's ability. That's what we're studying, right? An explicit statement on man's ability. And Jesus himself limits that ability. He says, verse 44, no one can come. That's a statement on ability, right? No one can come. It doesn't say no one wants to. It says no one can come to me. Nobody can come to Jesus unless what happens? Unless they really want to. Unless they, they try really hard, do good works. No, he says nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. God must do something. God must act. God must take the initiative. That's what this discussion is all about. That's what Calvinism believes, Monarchism. Not all are drawn. Not all are given to the Son. All those who are drawn and given are saved, right? You see that in the text? Everyone who is drawn and given to the Son, they are saved, right? Not all are saved. And so we know not all are drawn and given. Those on whom God acts, they get saved and Christ loses none. They are effectively saved. But the the only real issue we're pointing out now is, who's that going to be? No one, unless God does it. Why not? Because they're unwilling? Man is not saved because he's unwilling? Well, yeah, but deeper, he's unsaved because he's unable. He's not able to make that choice, to, to follow. He's not able to behold the Son and believe in him. Jesus said, I say to you, verse 36, you've seen me, but you don't believe. He's explaining why they don't believe. They just saw him multiply a few loaves of bread and fish and feed them all. That's insane. Who would not believe in him after witnessing that and hearing his teaching? Well, he's explaining why they don't believe in him, even though he's staring them in the face. Because he basically says you can't until God draws you. Unless God draws you. Now, after this, Verses 45 through 59, he just does some teaching on, you know, his flesh being true flesh. You must eat my flesh, drink my blood to be saved. You guys know that, that stuff, just teaching on. Of course, it doesn't mean literally. He's talking about believing in him as the bread of life. All, all good stuff. But let's just skip to verse 63. Look at verse 63. In fact, well, verse 60, we can start there. He says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Notice that. There's Christ making a statement on man as he is in the flesh. And what's that flesh going to do for him? Nothing. Nothing. The flesh profits nothing. It's not good for works. It's not good for will. It's not good for anything. The flesh profits nothing. It's only up to the spirit to give life. The spirit must give life, must impart life. Verse 64. Let's keep going here. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. And he's going to explain. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He was not surprised. Verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And he again repeats himself to reiterate and explain why even some of them We're not believing. And why one of them would betray him? Why is that? Because they don't believe. Why not? They can't. And they can't do so because the flesh profits nothing. And they will not do so unless God grants it. Unless God wills. It's not about their will. It's about God's will. Their will is not free. God's will is free. And it's up to his will on who he's going to grant to the son. It's pretty clear, pretty clear statement on ability. Again, verse 65, whenever you see that word can, you know, you're hearing a statement on ability. I said to you, no one can come to me. That's a statement on ability. And Christ, again, limits man's ability. Nobody can. You can't do it unless it's been granted him from the Father. You can come, but God has to grant you, like, okay, now you go. Now you can go. I'll restore and free your will, and and the Spirit will give you life. Now you can go. Now you can respond to that call to believe and be saved. But until then, you, you can't. Now, let's actually just finish the chapter really quick. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And you want to know why? Well, it wasn't granted to them of the Father. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You realize what's going on here. It's really amazing to behold. Right after all this teaching, John records Christ giving a perfect illustration of everything he just said. The contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. And what's the difference? It's not their will. Peter says, hey, we've believed. We've come to know who you are. But everything Jesus just said explains why. Why, why, do, why does Peter and the 11, why do they believe? Because it was granted by the Father and God drew them and that's why they believe. Why does not Judas believe? Why will he betray? Christ just explained that because he was not given. He was not drawn. He was passed by. Uh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. We'll get to all those objections. Just, just write them down and hold on to them because we'll spend a whole session on <laughs> objections. We'll, we'll get there. But you see what Christ is doing. And Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew from the beginning. Jesus chose Judas to be among the 12. But he knew from the beginning that Judas did not have God as his father. He had the devil as his father. And that never changed. Again, verse 65, the deciding factor put on display in contrast between Peter and Judas. Judas, it's not their will, but God's will. It was not their choice, but God's choice. Judas was chosen as a, a, a worldly follower, but never unto eternal life. He was just chosen merely to follow, but he was always of his father, the devil. And he was therefore held captive by him to do his will. And Judas is given as like the illustration of that. He's the, uh, the key illustration of that. So John 6, pretty clear, pretty powerful, pretty stunning. Look, I know a lot of these truths will... We'll wrap it up pretty quickly here. Maybe we'll just do a couple more verses and then save the rest for next time. A lot of these truths, when you read them, when you're exposed to them, and maybe, especially for the first time, that they can kind of take you back, and you think, wow, can that be true? That, it seems, wow, it seems pretty stunning that it's just it's in God's hands. It's up to God's will, not our will. Does that seem fair or just? And I just want to mention, look, none of this is something... That man is naturally going to make up. Because this is very diminishing to man. I'll just say this. If it wasn't taught in scripture, nobody would believe this. But the fact is, we're looking at explicit verses. So if you're wrestling in your heart, well that's okay. But you just make sure you land where scripture explicitly teaches. And what we saw from John right now. Jesus himself sees man's ability to answer those calls to believe in him as limited. The Armenian says, look, Christ said... Whoever believes will be saved. That's true. That doesn't teach free will. Christ himself taught. Actually, your will is limited because you can't even do that unless the Father draws and grants it. Now, real quick, let's just do these two more verses in John. They'll be quick, and then we'll finish. John 8. Turn to John 8. John chapter 8. Jesus teaching the crowd again. Some adversarial Jews are present they think, of course we're saved. We're descended from Abraham. So, of course, we're in the kingdom. We, we come from Abraham, right? Like they believed. So Jesus says, verse 41, he says, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies another very huge passive, uh, passage here. Notice he's talking to these Jews who are confronting him and they don't believe. They don't accept. Jesus says, verse 43, why? Why don't you understand? Why, why don't you believe? And here's another statement on ability. It is because you cannot. Which is just the flip side of can, but in the negative, same thing though. It's a word of ability. You cannot hear my word. It doesn't say you don't want to. He says you cannot hear my word. My word. And why is that? Because, verse 44, you're you're of your father the devil. You're enslaved to Satan. You're bound and held captive by him to do his will. And he says, And you want to do the desires of your father. Another statement on will. What do they what do they really want to do? Well, they want to do what's according to their nature, as all people. And being unsaved, their nature is of their father, the devil. So naturally, like we read earlier in John chapter 3, they want to do his things, the desires of their father, which certainly does not include believing in Jesus. And so Christ says they can't understand his teaching. They can't believe in him. They cannot hear his word because they're of their father, the devil. Ironically, in this same chapter, Verse 48, verse 52, they accuse Jesus of being demon possessed. In reality, he tells them they're the ones who are of their father, the devil. In fact, verse 33, verse 34, they think of themselves as free. Look at verse 33. It says, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So here these people are. They think they're free. They take pride in the fact they're descendants of Abraham. But ever since Exodus, that especially them, like, we're, we're no man's slaves. We are entirely free. And Jesus says, no, you guys aren't free. You need to believe and become free. In fact, the fact that you're still of your father, the devil, you're in sin, proves you're still enslaved. To sin, They were enslaved to sin and enslaved to Satan. There's a verse we're going to look at next week, but just for a quick bonus preview, let me read. Just listen. 2 Timothy 2, 26 Talking about the Lord's bondservant, he must, he must with gentleness correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Well, we'll get to that next week, but just a stunning verse saying the unbeliever, the opponent, right now, they've been ensnared by Satan and they're held captive by him to do his will. That's the definition of a bound will, not a free will. Your will has been limited by that bondage. And their only hope is that God would do what? Grant them repentance. He has to grant them repentance. And Christ pretty much saying the same thing. They have a nature problem, Ephesians 2.3. They're by nature children of wrath. They're enslaved to Satan. They're not able to hear Christ's words. They want to do the desires of their father. And therefore they, they cannot believe. They will not believe because deeper they cannot believe. And I'll just finish with this. This one's very short. John 14, 16 through 17. Christ talking to his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he will be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. One last verse, Christ's teaching on ability. The world, as it stands, they cannot receive the spirit of truth because they don't see God or know God. I I thought the spirit made everyone see. But Christ says, no, they can't receive the spirit. Passage doesn't describe the world as once being blind to the spirit, but now able to see by prevenient grace. No mention of that. There are many positions that the Holy Spirit has already administered God's grace to all people, lifting the veil of blindness but that verse is just another among many, depicts the world as still blind, still unable to see God and unable to receive the Spirit. Well, there's a lot more to come. And I want, I, technically we could move on. We've, we've already seen enough. But I, it's so important, this is a fundamental early truth in these doctrines of grace, that we're going to come back next week and finish going through the verses. I want to spend time with them because you need to see from Scripture with your own eyes What's the explicit teaching? Hey, human reason is great, but our, our reason has to bow to the explicit teaching of Scripture. And already we've seen enough, really, that Scripture explicitly teaches our will is bound, not free. We're just chalk out of time, so questions come after. I'm just gonna go ahead and pray for a time we'll be dismissed, but come see me after Tim and we'll get your questions going on. So that'll be it for tonight. We'll come back next week. We do those, we'll do part two. So let us pray. The great God, we bow before you tonight to your sovereignty, to your lordship. And humbly confess, Lord, who are we? Why why are we saved? We can't, we have nothing to boast of, no merit to to bring before you. Uh, our flesh profits nothing. And this study, Lord, let it not be purely academic but translate at least to worship for us because we know these truths when you learn them, they actually lead to greater worship greater reverence, greater holiness, greater evangelism, because you're the God who saves and you make salvation possible. You make worship possible. And, and all the more, Lord, we want to worship you tonight because we confess in our own hearts we were once lost and blind and enslaved, and it wasn't of us. We, we can recognize you are working in our hearts to change and make us willing and uh, freeing our will. We thank you for that, Lord, and give you the praise you, you rightly deserve for your, your sovereign work. Bless our evening and as we depart, as always, and keep us till next week, and we learn many more truths from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.